0: Okay, welcome to Open Sources Guelph. You're on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is. Scotty Hertz.
1: Uh, Adam, did you uh, emerge from the DARE show unscathed this week, or the once in a lifetime event that's probably going to happen, like, you know, in the fall or something? Or... Are you talking about the storm? Yeah, it was called the DARE show. That is the official name. Forty percent of Canada. Population is, was affected by this thing. This isn't. I really should have lo- gotten into meteorology instead of all this, but yeah, it's like I was
0: gonna say this isn't your fancy weather network shows with your nomenclature and um No, it's just what's what it was called. But I was I was I, I a tornado, yeah, but I was <laughs> I was out. I was uh, I was waiting for a bus when it Oh blew Was up. there a shelter? No. Yeah, there was a shelter actually.
1: You're lucky, at least you weren't on a roller coaster. Good lord.
0: Or in the park because uh, a lot of a lot of people went running in the park across the road from the bus shelter. Oh man, which was uh, it's funny and sad to watch. But
1: people don't know how to to deal with storms now. We need some training, I think.
0: Yes, uh, everyone was a storm tracker on Saturday. <laughs> Open sources is CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show. You can find us here every Thursday at five PM as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be two more candidates running in the current provincial campaign. At the bottom of the hour, we're going to hear from the none of the above candidate, Paul Taylor, who is proudly at the bottom of the ballot. Uh, not the poll, the ballot, the physical ballot. Um, if, if you're going to be none of the above, you do have to be at the bottom. Yeah, I wonder if um, none of those
1: <laughs> running? We'll have to find out.
0: <laughs> he's going to talk to us about why direct democracy is how we're going to start solving all of our problems. Uh, but first we're going to hear again from Rochelle Devereux, who's the liberal candidate. She joined us back in January. She was one of the first interviews of the year. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk to her about why uh, Stephen Del Duca is a, uh, Better than the invisible man moniker he has received. We're gonna talk about healthcare stuff and how uh she's gonna bring her healthcare uh or her, her health sector leadership experience to Queen's Park if she's elected and uh why there are so many healthcare people running for the Liberal Party. There are quite a few of them if you wanna look through the the mm-hmm. resumes of all the Liberal candidates. But let's get to Rochelle uh kicking us off for this week's show. And uh we're gonna hit play on that interview starting right now, now. rochelle Devereux, thank you so much for hopping on with me today
2: thank you for having me adam it's great of, to be here
0: uh of course um to begin with uh if people sort of have been looking outside of guelph and i understand why some people might not want to not everybody's a big old political nerd but uh there are a lot of healthcare people running for the Liberal Party in this election. And one of the notable ones is the, the former head of uh, St. Mary. She's running in one of the Etobicoke ridings. So you are the head of Guelph Community Health Center. And uh, given what I just laid out, I mean, what is it about the Liberal Party that seems to have attracted so many people from the health sector?
2: I think actually, Adam, that uh, the topic or the core issue in politics of representation is really something that demonstrates itself across the Ontario Liberal Party candidate team. Uh, in all ways, uh, shapes and sizes. And so healthcare you you note know, is certainly one of those areas uh, where you have the the uh, former vice president of, of St. Mary's Hospital and actually the former uh, CEO of Health Quality Ontario, Lee Farquh actually helped uh, teach me some of my early uh, health quality uh, lessons. Uh, and, uh, and then you also have a, a handful of doctors, uh, nurses, Uh, registered nurses and RPNs on the team, again, bringing that knowledge and expertise from the ground to the decision making table. But we also have lots of representation across many sectors, uh, small business owners, as well as environmental scientists and climate change activists. United Nations diplomats. Uh, and so, really bringing the best representation from our communities where individual candidates have championed ground based change across many levels of government and sectors around the table to help inform decisions at this really critical time. And specifically on healthcare, and I've said it many times at the doors. I am so excited to bring my healthcare system planning knowledge, my comprehensive primary health care knowledge, and my passion for mental health and addictions, especially preventative care for mental health and addictions, to the table at this critical time when these issues could not be more relevant to Ontario.
0: You've mentioned that at some of the debates, um, and I, I hope I don't get the nomenclature wrong, but like sort of, uh, you talked about the social Indicators for healthcare. Yeah. Um, I was hoping maybe you could, first of all, for people who may not have been at the debates and hearing you talk about it, talk about what are some of the social indicators for healthcare, but also how that can be incorporated into improving uh, Ontario's healthcare system.
2: You got it. So uh, so the, the notion or the evidence or, or research is really clear that there are so, uh, social determinants of health that will influence or impact one's health trajectory or health outcomes later in life based on the experiences at this point in time, and many of them based on the experiences early in life. Uh, so some of those examples include housing, uh, income security, or experience of poverty, as well as gender, Uh, and and so we know when folks have access to food security, housing, stabilized and and, and dignified income, their health outcomes improve. And some of that also includes early childhood trauma, which is a really incredible area of knowledge uh, and expertise from our own community, which is we know when children experience trauma early in life, uh, it changes their brain architecture. And in fact, building resilience within communities on individual levels in schools and neighborhoods is a huge protective factor against that experience of trauma. And then so too is the prevention of that trauma in the first place, a big focus for our community in Guelph. And so when you bring those social determinants together and we provide the best possible foundation of early childhood learning, income security, housing, food security, uh, environmental protections, then the outcomes that any one community improve remarkably over time. And so we often say, you know, we're downstream building bigger hospitals and putting more healthcare focus on the downstream solution of when people are sick the notion of social determinants is a core upstream investment and protection on the foundations that guide our health actually is the greatest, uh, efficient, uh, and, uh, efficiency model as well as dignified model for our communities to ensure that we have our best possible health.
0: Hmm. So, I mean, that's a, that sounds like a big shift in how we do things. Right. And I think, One of the things I've been talking to you and a lot of the other candidates about was how quickly we can, you know, shift things. People are looking for immediate solutions to generational problems. So, I mean, you know, say there's a liberal government on June 3rd, which you're smiling about at the possibility. But say there's a liberal government on June 3rd. I mean, how quickly can can a lot of this stuff be turned around? How quickly can we, like, turn the system on its head, (laughs)
2: Uh, Yes, I I use exactly the same language as turn the system upside down. And you raise an incredible point and one that's not lost on uh, our liberal platform, which is right now, and I've said this many times at debates uh, and in the media, the house is on fire. Right now the house is on fire. And so we need to infuse Surge investments, and you will see those in the Liberal Party platform into healthcare workers, 100,000 additional healthcare workers, focusing our hours of operation in our hospitals across the province to be around the clock. Again, that surge capacity to address backlog. We see that as well with 51,000 families and children waiting on autism wait lists. Surge capacity is needed. We're also working to roll out universal, uh, accessible, $10 a day childcare. Surge capacity is going to be needed by that. So what I mean by that, Adam, is investing, uh, and, and it's not time limited per se, it's needs based. And so mm-hmm. when you recognize that your community has needs that exceed the current capacity of the systems, you invest in surge capacity and reevaluate every uh every month or two months to measure how are we doing at the backlog once you address backlog then you reassess for actual base capacity it's almost impossible to project right now what is our right size uh, for our investments but what we're committing to whether it's in the example of education or healthcare or long-term care to investing in surge capacity to address the backlog so that people who've been waiting for care for surgeries for autism assessments uh, can get the care they need and deserve immediately. And then while at the same time, investing in that upstream prevention. And so that's where you see uh, in the Liberal Party platform, the basic income uh, demonstration pilots rolling out at the same time. We don't say, well, we'll deal with the house fire and then we'll figure out how it started. We're doing both at the same time, however, you're absolutely right. We need to ensure that it's not one or the other. And that search capacity is really strongly in uh, in our liberal platform to ensure people are getting access to timely care.
0: You'd be one of the people who knows. But I mean, do we have any idea what sort of like a baseline if we were to provide, you know, immediate, reliable access to care? Um, because I I I don't think I can remember a time where there wasn't a wait list for things like mental health or things like social housing. Um, we have no idea what what that baseline is. Correct?
2: Yeah. Um, what we aim for in comprehensive primary healthcare is actually a wait time of zero days, meaning that if you called today for your sore throat, you could get a same day appointment. So, yes, in different systems across uh, the healthcare or social services system, there are optimal targets. And sometimes they're not zero. Sometimes we say we can live with a four-week waitlist for social work. Uh, that's, that's timely, that's responsive. And other times we build systems that allow for same-day access and future follow-up, meaning you get your right time, right place need immediately with follow-up booked after. And so there is incredible innovation and knowledge in our system to do just that. But what is missing is the staff. Right. that are equitably paid in order for them to be both recruited and retained in these systems. And then in addition to that, actually having those feet on the ground across the hours to manage the backlog that we're facing.
0: In your experience, how many, cause I've heard all the political parties talk about the need to hire more. Yes. Um, but you know, people with that kind of skill and experience to, to borrow a phrase, don't grow on trees. Um, is it possible that, you know, the, the gaps can be addressed through, I mean, number one, retention are people who are leaving the system because they're overworked, undervalued, but also, uh, and this has been talked about a lot, the, the foreign trained workers, because otherwise we're talking about people who are going to have to go from zero to 10 with training and experience to to fill those gaps.
2: Absolutely. Uh, and so, yes, and, uh, you know, this is, this is very speculative and also opinion-based, not fact. But I can tell you that uh, the nurses who are employed in, uh, at the Guelph Community Health Center, those whose wages have been capped, uh, those who have experienced extreme shortages of PPE, gaps of knowledge, do not have a lot of confidence in the current system uh, or its capacity or their commitment to continue uh, within that uh, within that system. I think that a change in government is actually necessary, even just for that approach of we're going in a different direction and to rebuild that confidence and trust. In the relationship between healthcare workers and government, as well as education uh, workers and government. Uh, and so, really building that relationship such that we say it has been a difficult four years, and we are repealing Bill 2124. 20- we are setting mandatory minimums for remuneration for PSWs. We are relieving. Any tuition uh, debt, student debt for nurses and PSWs during uh during the pandemic. And again, hearing that, uh, Adam, from folks like myself who have led healthcare organizations during the pandemic, folks like Lee Farclau, who have led a hospital during the pandemic, uh, as opposed to hearing that from folks who actually have no connection or knowledge about that healthcare system and hearing, uh, you know, that they, they uh, are held or seen or understood, but then seeing repeated policies that speak the difference uh, we actually need to, to restore trust and then uh, rebuild on the foundation of that trust.
0: Before we sort of leave healthcare for some other issues. um, Again, you're, you're in the system, uh, part of the system. What's one thing about, health care and, and the provision for, of healthcare in Ontario that you know that you wished other people knew?
2: Uh, that's a great question. One of the things that I have spoken about and mentioned a few times is there were many times where, in my experience, government or senior decision makers within uh, ministries had access to knowledge that the general public would have benefited from. The intention I am not in any way suggesting was to withhold for the purpose of uh, you know of excluding or keeping secrets but rather it's I think there's an underestimation Adam of the degree to which the general public deserves to have the, all of the information and to then inform their own decisions based on all of the information. It's mm-hmm. the critical nature of decision making that we're taught at such an early age and yet, we have seen time and time again during this pandemic, especially in healthcare, where critical pieces of information are not transparently shared with the populace. And as a result, we come to our own conclusions. We uh, seek misinformation or receive misinformation and aren't sure. And I really see that one of the greatest challenges has been that lack of transparent, authentic communication with the public about things we got wrong about things that we're uncertain of, about things that we're trying our best but are still unsure on, and things that we are certain and we are going in this direction because of A, B, and C. At no time did I hear that level of confidence, transparency, and authenticity from our government. And I think that as a result, we actually experienced far greater emotional duress and fear uh, and worry and erosion and trust uh, during, during this time.
0: And and like you said, some of them might be unintentional because I I have wondered myself uh, through COVID how much gets held back because they don't want to feed the misinformation beast as well.
2: Exactly. Or have people be worried. Uh, My best example, Adam, was at the beginning of the pandemic when we had Uh, a lack of the uh, the nasal swabs for testing. Hmm. And we had incredible leadership right here in Guelph, where the family health team was leading the charge to actually open an assessment center very early in the pandemic, which in turn, we know turned out to be the the actual root way to control the virus is identification and contact tracing. As they were scaling up, We recognize the nose swabs, which are created and prepared and packaged in Italy, we're in a shortage. Instead of that coming out, Ontario relies on nose swabs from Italy, we have a supply chain issue, the best uh, course of action is to test and to contact trace. And we can't do that right now. And so in this emergency situation we are telling you to do this stay tuned the moment we have supply you will hear a different message from us right instead we just hear you don't need to test mm. family health team don't open that system yet that will concern the pop pu- uh, the public and here we are saying stay home stay home and then two weeks later we're trying to change our message to say no now it's time to test and people were confused and we lost so much opportunity to build trust and transparency in what wasn't a secret or anything malice or any mistake. It was just simply a function of our trade relations and the way that we uh, that we uh, receive goods and, uh, goods and services in the province of Ontario. But that loss of communication, I think, really hurt us.
0: Yeah, I do want to address uh, what's been a pretty. Uh, they've called it buck a ride, which I guess is a take on buck a beer, which is probably preferable to the former. But um, it, ha- having transit fares reduced to a dollar per ride, um, and I, I kind of addressed this in my latest thing on on Guelph Today. But you know, is is that a really a bargain, or is that really an encouragement to get people on transit when you know it, it may be a buck a ride? but it's still a three hour go bus ride from from Guelph to
2: Toronto, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, And and the point uh, is well taken, Adam, that we don't actually have right now at current state the infrastructure to have the frequency of go trains uh, for all day uh, two way go between uh, Kitchener and Toronto which includes the Guelph line of course and I've actually learned a lot about transit in the last few months uh, and what we actually need in order to increase frequency uh, is uh, is a, a infrastructure investment over a piece of CN track near Bramalee. it's called the basket weave uh, and it's about a 1.2 million dollar or sorry billion dollar price tag 1.2 billion and that Uh, Investment in infrastructure is in the liberal platform. And I know that we have been talking a lot about increasing frequency, increasing speed. And that is such a critical point for that $1 a ride uh, province wide to be most meaningful to residents in our community. Uh, And so, yes, the infrastructure upgrade is there. And then and in, in turn, we will have that increased frequency because you're so right. Uh, right now we have, uh, you know, the bus transfers and things that need to happen in order to get to Union Station in any sort of timely way.
0: You talked about learning a lot about transit. The, the, I wonder um, about filling those gaps in interregional transit, um, because I think that's that's the other part of this is, yeah, we can have a, you know, a regular train to Toronto, but uh, you can't get to Hamilton on public transit. You can barely get to Kitchener on public transit. You can't get to Cambridge on public transit. And I could I can walk there in a couple of hours from where I live in Guelph. So, um, exactly. ha, uh, ha, yeah, go ahead.
2: Yeah. When we saw the closure of Greyhound, so many communities across the province lost capacity for interregional connections, Uh, and it really uh, is an example, uh, I believe, of a policy failure where a closure happens, and uh, and we just sort of wait and see the degree to impact without actually preemptively planning uh, to create bridge solutions for folks. Uh, We do know that in the Ontario Liberal platform, that focus on interregional capacity, specifically using uh, Metrolinx and and Go uh, to facilitate those interregional connections uh, is critical Uh, and uh, I absolutely agree we need to not only be focusing on building Highway 7 as well but be looking at making sure that we can get uh, get to and from uh, the main cities surrounding Guelph in really accessible ways Uh, and that's a commitment that's both addressed acknowledged and invested in in the Liberal platform.
0: Speaking of the platform I've heard the jokes and I know you have too about the Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca being the invisible man. but you know you've had opportunities to to talk with uh, Mr. Dalduca and and work with him. So, I mean, w- what are the qualities that you see in him that uh, you wish maybe other people were seeing, um, or that you wish to promote uh, if he is to end up being the the Premier of Ontario? Um,
2: that's a great question. Uh, I would say, Adam, there's been three uh, significant uh, observations that I have seen. Uh, with Stephen Del Duca, and that I've seen consistently, and I think that that's one of the most critical pieces that Ontario and Guelph need right now is consistency. We have been through chaos; we've been on a roller coaster ride together as a province. But the more consistent and calm our leadership can be, and available, and uh, and so uh, two things I would say, just you know, generally, is that Stephen is both available and consistent in the. The way that he approaches an issue, which is to remain curious, to ask lots of questions before before speaking, and to engage those who have the expertise around the issue in the possible solutions. And so I've uh, spoken about in the fall experiencing uh, some rather extreme uh, uh, situations of sexual harassment. And the day that Stephen learned of that, he called me in the morning. He didn't come up with all sorts of statements and solutions, but rather was just really uh, quiet and talked about his uh, being a father of two girls, wanting to do the right thing, but knowing the right thing came from me and from our team, not from uh, the Ontario Liberal Party. Uh, And so then Stephen went on to be consistent and followed through with that and made sure that we got the support that we needed, uh, including uh, home security uh, for myself. The second thing that I saw from Stephen was an actual apology. And, uh, and I have to tell you, Adam, when I first became CEO at the Community Health Center, one of the first things I did at one of our all staff meetings was acknowledge that staff engagement and actual staff culture had gotten to an all time low. Mm. And the first thing I did as a leader, uh, and many remember this, was stood up and just said, we're really sorry that it got to this point. And when you set that, that foundation of we're here, we're here together, what happened in the past wasn't what I had hoped would happen. Let's move forward in a different way. It really uh, often surprises people because they're not often used to hearing leaders talk that way. And the first time I heard Stephen talk in October, he said, when I governed in Queens Park in the past, I didn't have the most becoming behaviors all the time. I mm. engaged in partisanship, shouting across the aisle, not honoring ideas for ideas or issues, but rather engaging in partisanship beyond, uh, beyond a level that we could even constructively talk about ideas. And hearing my leader in front of major news radio and a huge audience acknowledge that and say, in 2018, the province spoke to the Liberals And we have listened and we have rebuilt based on that relationship and learning. And I am committing to being different is both a leadership uh, quality that I think is very important in my own leadership to acknowledge when you've made mistakes and to do differently, uh, but then to also hold with confidence that you'll do that different together based on the uh, input from the folks that you serve. And that was to me an incredible leadership quality. And then thirdly, uh, Stephen is, you know, talk to Stephen about any complex issue, And you not only understand it more fully after the conversation, but you really understand that he recognizes complexity for what it is and recognize that one simple solution or even a few simple solutions uh, will be helpful. And so you hear him when he talks, speaking pragmatically, speaking comprehensively and speaking with wisdom that is clearly from those who experience the challenges. And so I think, Who can be premier if we want a change in government? Respectfully, it's not Andrea Hovart. And it's not going to be Mike Schreiner. And so I really hope that the leader of the province of Ontario is Stephen Del Duca. And that will mean that like when I was given a chance at the Guelph Community Health Centre up against huge competition, that trust was placed in me. And the province would need to put its trust in Stephen maybe not with all the information. And that's a, that's a tricky place to be, but we sure have been in the dark the last four years. So I think it, uh, it certainly is uh, a trust and a leap that I'm willing to make.
0: Well, as the man said, we'll see what happens. Um, but Rochelle Devereaux, uh, thank you for all your time and good luck in the, the last week of the campaign.
2: Amazing. Thank you so much, Adam. I really appreciate it have a great day.
0: And once again, that was Rochelle Devereaux, your liberal candidate for Guelph. For something completely different, we're going to uh, go to the none of the above candidate after the break. Uh, you know him, you love him. He's Paul Taylor. That's not an endorsement, by the way. Just as a, <laughs> as as a local political character, uh, Paul is is certainly an interesting guy, for sure. <laughs> Again, not an endorsement, but we will hear from Paul after the break. You are listening to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio.
1: So our Royal Cat Records pick of the week Royal Cat Records 21 MacDonnell in downtown Guelph. That song or song is from an album that is number eight on the CFRU charts this week. The album is called Downward Dog, the band is No Frills, and the track is called Dark Horse. <laughs> will there be any
0: dark horses this election?
1: We will see next week.
0: Mm-hmm. On this are, very early, next week, are, are they named after the grocery store chain?
1: Yeah, if you you wanted a Canadian band Like, you don't even need to read any further You hear that, it's like, oh yeah, they're probably I think they're Toronto, actually So They're going on
0: tour this summer with President's Choice And no name, <laughs> am I right? <laughs> Featuring Zares <laughs> <laughs> With two H's, I don't know Yeah. I hope they're not local and they're listening <laughs> <laughs> Now that I'm talking about it Probably a high compliment, I'm not sure <laughs> All right, this uh, this frivolity seems like a good segue into Paul Taylor, who is the none of the above candidate running in Guelph this time. He ran in Guelph last provincial election, too, come to think of it. Uh, Paul is a workers' rights advocate in his day job. He used to drive trucks for a living, so he's got a lot of uh, great stories and insights uh, from his time as a truck driver. But now he's uh, kind of a professional student while he's um, fighting for workers' rights so uh, he's an interesting guy for sure. He's got a lot of interesting ideas. This is definitely an interview you will not hear on power and politics. So.
1: <laughs> not yet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not yet anyway. But uh, why don't we hit play on our interview with Paul Taylor starting right now. So, Paul Taylor, thank you so much for joining me today.
3: You're welcome, Adam. I'm just noticing I have a double chin. Crap. <laughs>
0: That seems like uh, something we should edit out, but we'll leave it in to give you some character. Um, <laughs> uh, so this is not your first uh, time on the ballot. Uh, you are back again fronting for none of the above. so um, why did you want to run again in in this provincial election?
3: um I, I think <clears throat> I think what speaks volumes, To be quite honest, is not the ones that really vote, which it does answer to them, but more to the ones that don't vote. When you talk to the average person, you say, Did you vote? And they'll go, No. (laughs) And you say, Why? And they go, What's the point? Mm. You know, they're frustrated, they're upset. And I think when you look to the simplicity of this party's platform, which is just simply the three R's, let me do that three R's, (laughs) which is um, referendum, recall, and reform. And the recall feature, I think, just speaks thunderous volumes in that, you know, you're able to fire a politician when they suck, you know. So when, when they get elected, um, if they screw up, they can be recalled. A, a good example, and I think I mentioned this in, in another debate, but it, it, it's really clear is that there was several elected officials that they actually had to go before a judge because there was no way to recall them. Mm. And the one was the mayor in, in London, Ontario, who the judge actually removed. And I'm like, as much as I respect the judiciary, I don't think that's right. I think it should be the people that elected them that should decide because who knows the voters might say, no, that's okay. That's cool. We like a corrupt politician. You know, <laughs> I don't know. So it's like, is it really right for a judge to do that? Um, also, I think that, Maybe it would have been more expedient for the people to do that in Mississauga, it was Hazel McCallion that was under the spotlight. Now, mm. the judge was very and the judge did say, I'm not going to touch this one, I think, because he was afraid of our popularity. Let's be honest. right? And he didn't want to you know, touch that. But I think if we had that in the system and in, in the in the electoral system where if so many people you know, petitioned, whatever, like it has to be a fair process. Because I think the biggest negative side is people saying, well, then we'd have elections every five days. No, 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 no. There would have to be a proper process of it happening where people would file a petition of the actual electors and then and it'd be like over 50, 60 percent. Then an election would be called, you know, the what do you call it in between? I always screw that up. by election. That's it by election. Um, And then in that situation, then they would be able to speak. They would be accountable to the voters. And, and when I mentioned that, that should you'd think people would be very interested in it, but it seems like, I mean, what's scaring me about this election right now with the recall feature and everything else is not that, but when I look at what Ford's doing right now, which is he's literally, well, not him, but the party is almost telling the candidates not to attend debates. Mm-hmm. And it's almost going to get to the point where we're going to be giving up our democracy by not even having ele- I know it's a slippery slope. But you have to always think a step ahead and saying, where are we headed? Mm-hmm. You know, so I think instead of going down that road of no elections and and the conservatives seize control because, you know, and, and I don't mean to send paranoia or anything. But remember, Hitler was elected. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't seize power. He was elected and then he seized power and he was able to do that because there was no recall feature. You know, I mean, maybe if there was and they, recall, they would have been like, no, he's cool. We love him. But then towards the end of the war, they would have been like, no, things aren't working out. We're getting rid of you. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, same within Russia right now with Putin. They say that Russia has a fair democracy or whatever. I don't know. But, um, but he should be recalled or, or like they should be able to recall him there. You know, and that's not happening. And, and then the other one is we want reform. And the one piece that I like about the reform was that right now, when you appear before a judge in the superior court, Ontario Superior Court, Justice, Divisional Court, Court of Appeal and Supreme Court of Canada, those are federally appointed judges. So the prime minister just goes you and you and you, and then gives a list of the governor general, and then they become judges for life mm-hmm. to age 75. Basically they can't be fired. In fact, and I could be wrong. So if I'm wrong, call me out on it. I'd love it. But there was a judge in Quebec that sat on the court of appeal who killed his wife, was tried and found guilty. And he wasn't fired. He had to resign. They resi- he resigned. So he'll, he still keeps his pension. Then there was the other judge. Um, I, I want to say Manitoba, but I can't remember exactly. It was the one with the rape trial, mm-hmm. where as far as I'm concerned, he mocked the rape victim because the comments were utterly disgusting. They were shameful. And everybody was like, you know, it's that, what do they say, shock the foundation of society or whatever that phrase. And he wasn't fired either. He resigned. Since 1972, there's been something like 15 or 17 judges that have resigned. None have been fired. They've never had to go to the final step of firing a judge. And the way you do it is they have to a petition parliament and then parliament enacts, and then removes the judge. And that's a very lengthy process. Just recently there was a judge where they were actually at that stage in Quebec. It was a Quebec judge.
2: Mm -hmm. And then
3: he finally resigned because somebody comes up to him and says, Hey, are you crazy? If they remove you, you lose your pension, you lose everything. (laughs) But if you resign, you keep everything. So, and I'm like, I'm sorry, but getting back to like the political, the, the politicians, the, when they get recalled and they're done, they're done. I I think the same accountability should be had for judges. Now we're talking about 0.0001% of judges. Right. Mm -hmm. But the fact is the rules need to be put in place to protect us from that bad situation. Is there not
0: um, a danger too, though, of, um, you know, something like what happened last year in California where uh, a, you know, a couple of, billionaires with a lot of money wanted to get rid of gavin newsom the governor of california and they they're able to you know hire a bunch of people to go out and get a bunch of signatures and all of a sudden you're having this costly by-election um right. because it, it's 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 been weaponized as, as a political look,
3: look at what happened before the 2018 election mm. and that was loblaws hmm turn around and raised issue and then said, oh, is it going to cost us $100,000 if the minimum wage goes up to $15 an hour? And then Sobeys followed suit and said the same thing, and so did Metro. And as far as I'm concerned, that was one of the big things that pushed the Liberals out and for it in. Mm. But I'm like, wait a minute, why are you even speaking in an election? Mm. You know, you're, you can't even vote. You're not even a legal entity. I mean, in the sense of the electoral and the legal process, according to the Supreme Court, a business doesn't even have charter rights, protected rights. So to, to sort of answer your question, I would be fighting for measures in place that businesses removed from the electoral process. They shouldn't have a say. Mm-hmm. And to answer the question on the flip side, unions, yes too, in the sense of equal. You know what I mean? It should only be for voters to be a part of the process. And that's the reform part I would be fighting for. To say that we need to get rid of Mike even mentioned that he when when the the subject of lobbyists came up, Mm -hmm. he was like, oh, yeah, I kind of laughed in my head. I wanted to scream it out and start laughing and going, I bet you had some big oil guys coming to you trying to lobby. All right, Mike, we know you're a Green Party, but, you know, and I, I remember in political science class, the professor said a few years ago that lobbyists in Ottawa and Toronto increased over 230%. And it's like, and yeah, like, and and that's a big problem too. Look, look at the past. We just got to remember what happened before. Mike Harris was the former premier of Ontario. He brought private long-term healthcare. Remember, he made it into law. Prior to that, it was managed by the Ontario, by the Ministry of Health, right? And since... It was a dis- I think everybody agrees it was a disaster, but before COVID, market- CBC's Marketplace aired many episodes. I remember the one where it was undercover. The camera was there. It wasn't the staff. It was because the staff, it's like one person making 15 bucks an hour. They got 30, 40 people to take care of, so neglect occurs. It's not them. It's the, the, the for-profit model doesn't work, and the worst part was Mike Harris brought all this in And he profited directly from it. How? Mm -hmm. He's the president of Chartwell, (laughs) one of the largest long-term care facilities. And did you know he even got the Order of Ontario for that?
0: Mm -hmm. I'm like,
3: what is the Order of whatever anyway? (laughs) I know we have the Order of Canada. And a law professor I know well, she started the National Self-Represented Litigants Project for people that represent themselves in court. And because she took it from baby steps to a national program, she actually was awarded the Order of Canada. And I actually commented to her in an email and I said, you know, you actually bring real value to the order because usually people see it and it's just, you know, it's like knighthoods or, or the (laughs) queen's council for lawyers. In other words, it's patronage appointments. It's just garbage. It doesn't mean anything. But in these situations, when you do see, good people doing good, then it brings value to the award. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. I wanted to address something you mentioned that uh, unfortunately, one of the few debates uh, you've been invited to um, and I, it, it struck a chord with me. You, you talked about you're making a sad face cause you don't get invited to all the debates.
3: <laughs> um, it's a black thing. See, none of the above black and <laughs> see, black, see, they don't like me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but you mentioned how, um,
0: you know, there's been a lot of talk about the housing crisis, uh, but you are someone who's been personally affected by the housing crisis. You've been priced out of wealth where you want to be the MPP.
3: Oh, that, could, that Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. It literally is insane. Um, like right now I'm living in Hamilton and not that I'm saying Hamilton's a bad city or anything. <laughs> but I miss Guelph. No, <laughs> one of the factors was, is that, and I'd said to this, to Mike, after he was elected.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and I said, why is there no go bus to go from Guelph to Hamilton? And then many people say, well, why do you want to go to Hamilton? Well, I go to McMaster University as well as doing everything else I do. I'm crazy. I can't just do one thing. I got to do 50. Yep. <laughs> so I go to university as well. And I was studying labor studies, political science. Well, unfortunately, Guelph doesn't do labor studies, or I would have loved to have been there five minute drive. Boom. So that was one of the reasons to moving, and then as well as the cost. When I'm looking around, and it's like rent for for places goes from 1,500 started. You know, when I moved there in 2014, 2013, now I think it's like almost three thousand dollars a month. And I'm like, do the math quickly. 15 bucks an hour times 40 hours a week times four is. Crap! I can't do math in my head. I hate those people that can, and they'll just go whoa whoa! I'm like, no way. So 15 times 40 uh, times four equals 2,400 dollars a month, the minimum wage. That's right. gross. Yeah. I mean, not as in, ew, that's gross. Well, actually, it is, but that's besides <laughs> the point. But now, so the average rent um is what in guelph for a one bedroom like 18 1900 because i know two and three bedrooms are pushing well over 2500 right so in other words if you have a family and you're working a minimum wage job forget it um and forget about buying a place in 1970 my mom and dad bought a house four bedroom fully detached house in mississauga and it cost them 21,000 or something, but the fact is you go, okay, well, yeah, cheaper things. No, no. both of them, he was a waiter and she was a waitress. Mm. So can you do that today? Many go, well, yeah, no, let's be honest at $2,400 a month. I don't think so. And okay. Double at 4,800. Then you've got your taxes. You've got food, gas. If you're going to drive a car, well, if you're lucky enough to be able to afford a car or, or bus fare, what's bus fare now on the Guelph transit, 80 bucks a month. Yeah. For a bus pass? Yeah. You know, that maybe this is what people need to do is to literally paste a minimum wage budget in the paper and show people what people are expected to live on. You know, and that's not these so-called unemployed welfare booms is what they are always saying. It, it's people that are working 40 hours a week. Like, uh, uh, you you want to see where Guelph is going to be? Seriously? There was a show on Netflix And they do, I watch a lot of their documentaries. They're really good. And one was about homelessness in California. And they literally have this fenced in parking lot. So people can go that don't have a home, but work and they sleep in their car and they can be safe, you know, Mm because it's fenced in. Right. Mm -hmm. And they, they can, you know, make a little coffee and then they go to work. And then the one woman, she has a gym membership so she can shower every day. So she doesn't stink. And I'm like, wow, well, that's pretty cool. But, you know, and it's like, okay, make a note of this because you know what? It's coming. Seriously. You know, people might, oh, no. Yeah, it is. Because if we don't make major changes right away, uh, that's where it's going to happen. And, you know, I hate to do it, but the housing crisis is not the federal or the provincial. It's actually local. Right. People go, well, how is that? When I was a kid, it was impossible to rent a basement apartment because it wasn't legal. You couldn't do it. You had to have building permits, you have to have electrical permits, and then you have to have a license to be a landlord. Now it's like you can get one, and most of the times they don't even have proper evacuation routes. Like, you know what I mean? They're not the, They're like, oh, this window you can fit through, and I'm like, I'm pushing 300 pounds. I can't fit through that window. <laughs> they don't care. And then what about people in wheelchairs? You know, and, and that's the problem. There's a reason why we have apartment buildings and townhouses to rent. I, I don't agree with this renting of basement apartments. And, you know, <laughs> remember there was one family in Guelph that was doing the treehouse. Right. It was in, and, and I remember I, I was speaking to, I think it was Darren um, in the radio station. And, and he goes, yeah, yeah, I remember that. I said, yeah, I said, I was like, when I read that in the, in the paper, I was like, are you kidding me? They, they were, it wasn't that they said, stay here for free. They were renting it. Like what's next? You know, we're going to start renting our garden sheds. I shouldn't have said that because some people are like, mm. <laughs> You know, it, it's getting crazy. Like, I can see it for, but the, the and, and I think the biggest problem, too, is when you're looking at people, the housing problem is no different than any other problem. It's a lack of respect for the other people as human beings. You're saying that I have no problem with you living in a basement or wherever. I'm not going to do it, but, you know, you, you can because hmm. I want to make more money. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and another big problem I've noticed, because I also represent tenants, too, because I'm a paralegal. And, oh, my God, I am so sick of hearing, I just got an N12 from my landlord. I'm like, oh, God, not another one. See, that's what landlords are doing now is because if you if you rent your place, say you moved in there in 2010, and your rent's like 500 bucks a month, your landlord's like, hmm, if I kick Adam out, I can jack it up to like two grand a month, Right. So how do I do this? Well, I want it for personal use or oh I'm I'm renovating it or some other garbage, right? So then they kick you out. Now they can jack the rent up because we have, you know, sort of rent control. And did you know what Doug Ford did this January as soon as, you know, yeah, still the pandemic was on, he allowed the landlords to raise the rent. Like I mean, many people would say it's not right that tenants should get off with paying rent. No. And, and the rent strike was stupid. Okay. Mm. It was just plain stupid because landlords need the money to pay for their bills. But where you need help is the government. That's where the government should have had a full on proper rent bank. So when people fell into hard times, you pick up the phone, you call them, you fill out a simple and easy to do form, not 1600 pages. (laughs) And then you know, they'll cover your rent while you're in the hardship and you know what I mean? That mm-hmm. prevents homelessness. They've, it seems like the local governments like uh, that I talked to with tenants and that, they've completely gone away from it. Because right. like tenants are saying to me, well, I said, did you try the rent bank? And they're like, yeah, I don't qualify. Well, you're not working. Yeah, they just said, I don't qualify. I make too much. I'm like, what? Like, it, it, none of it makes any sense. I don't know. Did I answer your question? I've just been babbling. <laughs>
0: uh, I can't remember what the question was. It was 10 minutes ago. Um, but <laughs> but you know, you you know, you, you have your nose to the ground, your your ears to the ground, um, when it comes to these issues. So, so I mean, you know. Coming up in the over, yeah, I'm next...
3: just rubbing my nose because I think I put it too close to the ground.
0: <laughs> well, cu- coming up over the next couple of years, I mean, what's kind of concerning to you? I mean, you've talked about, you've addressed sort of the privatization of healthcare, but I mean, what else has kind of got healthcare you? Healthcare
3: worries me greatly. Yeah. Because um, as I'm getting older, and you know, it's funny, and I said this to the campaign manager of Shall Remain Nameless. I said, you know, it's kind of funny because I thought when the baby boomers got older that we would guaranteed either have NDP or something like that. Like, you know what I mean? A total protection of health care, because the baby boomers are getting older and it would be impacting them directly. But it it seemed like they went the other way. Yeah. You know, and I think it's because they want private health care or something. I, I don't know. But yeah, healthcare worries me greatly. I think um what worries me more is housing. Mm. I think that. You see, I I think many people in Guelph, see, I'm I'm different in a way, and I'm not special, if you want to call it that, is because I drove truck in the States. So I've been all over the United States. And prior to the big crisis and everything, and one thing that really shocked me once was when I was in New York City, I was in Bronx or Brooklyn, I can't remember. And it was an inside loading dock, and I back in, and it was on a big wide street, and there was a car parked beside a fire hydrant. And I've been there several times over the course of months. Right. And I said, you know, every time I come here, that car's there, that abandoned car. Why don't why doesn't the city ever tow it? And he go, oh, the car by the fire hydrant. I said, yeah. He goes, oh, yeah, family lives in there. And I go, what what do you mean? Like a bunch of bums or something? He goes, no, no. the, The mother and father work. The kids go to school. And I was just like. Like, I couldn't believe it. That's where we're headed. You know, and I think that's what scares me the most. And, and you can see it in this election because it's the number one question coming up all the time is housing affordability. You know, and I'm not going to lie. It's affected me personally. Like I was looking and I'm like, oh, OK, you know, OK, I shoot higher, a bit higher because I need a house because I have a dog and he's such a mm-hmm. suck, you know, lab. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's nice to have a place where you can. Walk. like I'm not talking about a big mansion out on. You know, whatever road or something like that, just a basic, right? And they're you're you're looking now for like a two or three bedroom house, townhouse even, just under three grand a month, and you have to pay your own utilities, of course, house insurance, everything. So it's like, whoa, this is pretty steep. And I'm like, wow, you know. And and the same thing I got, like I said in 2014, was for about twelve to fifteen hundred was the range. So rent has literally doubled. In Guelph in in less than 10 years. But pay has not. Mm -hmm. So workers in general have to make up that gap. You know, and that's I think that is the number one concern for most workers and should be the most important concern for any candidate. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: You know, including Doug Forties going around promising the world and giving nothing. No. (laughs) But and, and I think too. I mean, there's, there's the, the housing is my biggest number one concern. I think the other issue is, like I said, is healthcare. Healthcare has always been my concerns. And I'll tell you why it's not because this is what people are telling me. This is what's affecting me personally. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, but I'm being selfish. And that's something that voters should be, believe it or not. You know, I hear a lot of voters saying, Oh, well, why would I want to vote uh, this party or that party or whatever? You know, I was No, vote with what you want. Don't strategically vote. Because believe it or not, and this is one thing I didn't even realize, was is that when each candidate receives so many votes, they get funding from Elections Ontario, which then makes that party stronger. That's how the Green Party started out. They had no MPPs, and over time they got funding. They worked hard, campaigned hard, and eventually now they have one and maybe, according to Mike and his dreams, Two, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I do wish him all the best. He's been fair.
0: That was a lot, Paul. But
3: (laughs) I appreciate
0: all your time. And I appreciate uh, the candidates like you put your name in. And uh, and run. So good luck in this last week of the campaign. And
3: uh... was it the last week? Oh my god!
0: <laughs> it is the last week. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to deliver. You better get out and to. door knock. You better get out and door knock. I'm
3: afraid to. I knock and then I'm like, this don't yell at me. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Paul.
3: Thanks, Adam. You have a great day.
0: All right. So once again, that was Paul Taylor of the None of the Above Party. You find his name at the bottom of the ballot um where it belongs um whoa <laughs> no no t is for taylor right because he's t because if you're going to be none of the above you, you have, have to be to, yeah. it doesn't make sense if it's none of the above and you're in the middle of a ballot am i right yeah okay
1: his name to paul zebra or something just you know
0: <laughs> to get well, that final thought i did talk to him about that it's like you know you're lucky your last name is t so like it odds are good maybe there's a w but it's very remote you're gonna get to a, a U, V, X, Y, uv xy or Z. <laughs> maybe it's <laughs> it. anyway that's uh that's neither here nor there <laughs> we're gonna have to call it a day for this week's show we hope you liked it You can stay connected to us at our website at opensourcesguelph.com. Find us on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire, and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. If you would like to listen to this show again, you can download it from our website every Monday, get it at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple Stitcher, Google, tune in and Spotify. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, or you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca.
1: And I'm Scotty Hurts on Facebook, Scotty Hurts on Twitter. Now, the blog didn't happen, but I wrote a thing, a political thing. It can be found at rankandfile.ca.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We will not be here next week at 5 p.m. Uh, because there's an election next Thursday, so we're going to be on the air at 8 p.m. instead going live to air with the election results show so stay tuned for that and we'll be back here uh two weeks from now or two weeks from an hour ago with more open sources
1: (laughs) (laughs) time travel is like is tough
0: and we will see